What the beep? Uh, I didn't realize you were counting it down there. I didn't see that there at all. Okay. <laughs> what the beep just happened? <laughs> Hey guys, what's up? This is your host, Beat McGriddle, and today I have a very special guest with me. Its name, its name, his name, I don't know, is uh, Joe Merlino. I've been kind of stumbling over my words all day. Joe, say hi. <laughs> hi. I haven't changed pronouns. I'm still he. Yeah, you're still he? Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, for the record, guys. <laughs> um, but I have brought him on the show because he is a very dear friend of mine, and also because he has some fascinating stories. He's a great musician, so I want to share them with you. Or like I like to tell Bree, I've been playing music longer than you are old. <laughs> <laughs> well, so thus he has some great stories. Yeah, they're awesome. So um, where do you want to start? We were talking about our outline, but let's just flesh it out. Yeah, so I grew up in an Italian family. All of my uncles played some kind of musical instrument. So I was really exposed to uh, music at a very early age around my uncles. They played guitar, accordion, harmonica. And my grandparents, being from Italy when they came here, used to just love the cowboy music. Okay. So they used to play that kind of stuff. And I remember my grandmother actually had a 78 of some Gene Autry music and stuff. So they were, for some reason, the Italians gravitated towards that cowboy music. I never knew that. That's interesting. And, and my uncles used to play that kind of music. So by the time I got to be, you know, probably seven years old, I'll try to condense the story. Because if I told the whole, <laughs> whole story, we'd be still here tomorrow morning. Uh, so by the time I got to be like seven or so, I was like, I got to get in, you know, start doing something to get in with those guys, with my uncles and play right. some music. So I started playing harmonica and I got pretty proficient at harmonica and I would be able to play with them a little bit, you know, doing some stuff. At age seven? Yeah. That's pretty good. And then, you know, later, some years later, <clears throat> when um, I got into what now is called classic rock music but at the time was just you know underground music we used to call it okay so when i got into that kind of music and what it was Jimi hendrix the cream the doors at the very beginning of that music it was called underground music there was very few radio stations that played it so anyway when i started to get into that kind of music um because of the beatles then i started teaching myself guitar and I played guitar, played harmonica. What age was that about that you started teaching? Probably like 13 or, or so. Okay. Yeah, because I saw the Beatles when I was, they came on when I was like 10 or something, the first time, 12. Okay. And then it progressed from there, like, okay, I got to learn how to play music now, too. Were you into them instantly or did it grow? Instantly, no. No growth needed. Okay. The first note I heard of them on the Ed Sullivan show, I was sold. So and you I, saw them on the Ed Sullivan show. Yeah, do, yeah. What did they play? <clears throat> Which song? Who I don't remember. I yeah, I know it's one of the... It might have been Love, Love Me Do, but I don't remember. Because I remember I saw that in a rock and roll class I took in high school, and we, we watched that original clip, but I can't remember what it was. Yeah, so I you know, started going out and getting my mom to buy some singles, you know, and I had the Beatles singles, and that was it. We, you know, and as the Beatles grew, you know, over the years, we just sort of, me and my friends just sort of... Our life was just wear out one Beatle album until the next one comes out, then start on that one, you know. To, yeah. So we knew every lyric every to every song. We knew the order of the songs uh, on each album. So we would literally just absorb each one endlessly until the next one came out. 
That's really funny. And they were, how often would they come out? Like yearly? Or yeah. About that? About, yeah. Trying to think of all the records and when they came out. Yeah. I think their record company was pushing them at that time to right. get one out a year. That must have been so exciting. Yeah. When it was they, great. When they did come out. So no, uh, you know, so this is at the time when the only information, that, so you had a group like the Beatles. I was crazy about them. You know, loved everything about them. Uh, they inspired me musically. But at the time, in order for us to get any information, there would have to be, you'd have to catch some random news story or something on TV about the Beatles, or you'd have to get these monthly, like, teen magazines. Okay. Which we used to go in the store and get. That was the only source of information. So whatever you got out of that one magazine for that month, you know, little tidbits about this and that with the Beatles, that was it. There was no other way to get any other information until the next issue of that magazine came out. That's really because nobody, nobody could have got any information that you didn't get unless they, you know, knew somebody that knew somebody or something like that. Right, like they were in the. But in media, you know, you just had to maybe you randomly were watching the news and they had a story about the Beatles or they were on Dick Cavett show, one of the talk shows. But uh, you know, there was no what I'm. The point I'm making is there was no internet, so right. Our source of information was print and very limited and. uh, yeah, you just had to wait. Yeah, so it's That's amazing now, looking back, you know, sometimes I'll just randomly search for Beatles stuff, you know, so much. I'm like, wow, I didn't even know that, you know, and it was because there was no way to put that information out. You know, it's very interesting because when I think to when I got into the Beatles, it was, I, I was into the Beatles in high school, but I really got into the Beatles in college because I remember I got into Abbey Road and kind of moved backwards. But there's so many interesting facts about Abbey Road, and that was part of the reason why I got into Abbey Road was like how each song was recorded and how they would super technical. So interesting, but I could find that information out because I just looked on Wikipedia. I was like, oh, let me look this stuff up, and just read everything about it in one day. And then I remember going out to a diner with one of my good friends who introduced me to Abbey Road and was like, did you know this, 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 and this? He's like, no. (laughs) We're like sitting there looking over the Wikipedia article. But I can get any information at any time. So continuing where I left off, um, yeah, I was just talking with my friend at the diner. We can look at, at it all in one day, and that's really different than what you went through and yeah, so what we, you could reach. So when the album came out, we would go buy that album, and... The Beatles were one of the first bands to start putting like their lyrics and um, not necessarily recording information, but little tidbits of information about, you know, so it was interesting to get that. But once you had that and read all that, that was pretty much it. Right. You had no way to find out who they recorded with, who did what parts. None of that was available. I wonder how that must have been documented somehow. I guess probably it was by probably, producers and yeah, managers. Yeah, and I don't even think any like uh, books had been put out at that time, even that. So it was really hard to find yeah. out anything. So we took advantage of every single time that we heard the Beatles were going to be on TV just to see what they now looked like since the last time we saw them. Yeah. Because you'd see them from one time and you wouldn't see them again for quite a while until the next album came out and all of a sudden they looked completely oh, different. Oh, and they really evolved from yeah. album to album. Big so you time. wouldn't grow with that look. You'd just see them in one phase and then all of a sudden see them in another phase. Right. And that's really interesting thing from that perspective. And again, from I think of my friends and we really 
I have some friends who are like Beatle fanatics and I, I'm pretty big on the Beatles myself. But we, there's some of us who know facts about the Beatles and stuff about them that like, it's like a Beatle encyclopedia, yeah. but we have a retrospect view rather than as it was occurring. Uh-huh. And it's sort of like we're different type of Beatle fans. It's, it's very interesting. And then the other, <clears throat> the other thing they got me with was, so the first, I don't know, the first two or three album, Beatle albums I bought were uh, in mono at the time. There was mm-hmm. no such thing as stereo. So then when they started putting out albums in stereo, you know, I told my mom, like, oh, now I got to go buy these other ones that I had in mind. I have to buy them in stereo now. That's so funny. <laughs> so I actually have some of the early Beatle albums. I actually have two copies of them. That's really cool. One in mono cool. and one in stereo. That's really cool. So anyway, as your, your childhood evolved, by the time you were 18, how many instruments could you play? Well, I had taken obligatory Italian family accordion lessons for about okay. seven years. I was very proficient on the accordion. Okay. And that's really where I learned how to most about reading music, actual music notation. Okay. Was from taking accordion lessons. I actually wasn't aware you could read notation. I can't anymore. Oh. <laughs> then you're, the... you're spot on with me then. I'm, I'm a music major. I have my associates in music. And yes, I can read music, but I don't really actually apply it to my instrument very much. I play guitar. Um, primarily, and so I am chord-based mostly because I play rhythm, and even when I went solos and yeah. read tabs, so I just learned it more for voice than anything I'd say. I mean, so. I shouldn't lie. Actually, I can read. So, say if I want to, I'm looking to learn a particular melody that's kind of hard. Like you can pick it out. I can look at it and pick out. You know, it might take me 20 minutes to pick out three measures, but I yes. I can actually identify the notes. I took some sight singing, <laughs> so I can do some basic intervals, like you know, chromatic and and thirds and stuff. But beyond that, I can do some basic piano. Yeah, you know, I'm things like that. I'm impressed with people that can just sight read like that. Me it's too. Amazing. I commend all you band people out there, <laughs> but. So anyway, so by the time you were 18, you played so, yeah, accordion, accordion, guitar, guitar harmonica. bass, and harmonica. Okay, so that's that's a pretty decent and ba- repertoire. And bongos. Oh, bongos. <laughs> why did on you the even, boardwalk in Atlantic City. <laughs> why did you even mention the other <laughs> instruments when you could play bongos? So, so yeah, so at, the to- at that time then, <clears throat> like I said, you know, beyond the Beatles, when, you know, what they influenced and what rock music grew into, mm-hmm. at one point they began to call underground music right so regular radio station that during the day uh, w is what is now wmmr during the day they would play you know frank sinatra uh, the the crooner kind of music in other words right adult contemporary music mm-hmm. well nine o'clock at night they would switch over and all of a sudden they would start having a disc jockey that played underground music that's interesting okay. and he was allowed to play nobody you know no format that songs didn't have to be fitted like a three-minute format so they would play like uh, the b-side of iron butterfly in a gata de vida mm-hmm. was that song the whole side of an album so they played like 15 minutes songs, they right? would play the long songs and i think about that because like um, even like this probably wouldn't apply to under this wouldn't qualify as underground but like Bob Dylan's like a Rolling Stone is like a very right. long song and some of Pink Floyd's songs are really long that wouldn't be out really yet but yeah you know but stuff that's, like that. those are the kind of things that broke the format of like top that would be 40 fun radio. that they would play the whole song because some songs really don't get all their glory unless they're fully played so that's where I started that was my introduction to other bands besides the Beatles. Okay. I was admittedly very closed-minded with the Beatles. I didn't like very many other bands outside of them. 
Okay. But the ones I did like, you know, in retrospect, now turn out to be like the most quality. Well, that's good. At least you uh, had time. a good so, ear. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, you know, the, the Doors I listened to somewhat. The Rolling Stones, uh, Cream. I was okay. uh, next to the Beatles. I would have to put Cream as my top group. Jimi Hendrix. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. I was some pretty limited. <laughs> Closed minded at, at the time. At least those are but, good ones, and yeah. they have a distinct style there. And Bob Dylan. I have. I still have a lot of vinyl. I Bob Dylan. I used to love. Bob Dylan. I, I still like him, but I went to a Bob Dylan concert. Kind of turned me off of him. I think I might have told you this story. It was a, a concert that was a gift from my aunt for my senior, like, graduation, my senior year of high school. And um, I was obsessed with Bob Dylan. I said I would marry Bob Dylan in another life. Um, and uh, listened to his music all the time, mostly the early stuff, but uh, I'd listened to it. And I just also liked his whole character, his whole persona. I watched a 1965 press conference on YouTube, and that's just what got me into him. He just was such a rebel he, and yeah, an anarchist. He's his own person, for sure. Yeah, so I just got on that. And um, so I went to this concert at the University of Delaware, and... Um, it was really weird. You don't um, know what you're going to get with him you nowadays. You really <laughs> don't, but it was disappointing. I would have expected anything, but he was just so blah. It wasn't even that the music was bad, so he didn't speak once during the entire concert. Um, if he moved positions on the stage, the lights went out, and he reappeared somewhere <laughs> on the stage. Didn't say a word, didn't say hello, I'm Bob Dylan, didn't say this is my song. And that so sounds like something he would do. It was so <laughs> weird. And it was so like, I'm like, dude, I could have watched YouTube videos instead of this. I was expecting a little interaction here, you know? It was just, yeah. So I, it was it was kind of came off prideful and I talked to one of the stage hands and it was really funny because I was asking him about it and he was like, yeah, actually he doesn't even allow us to work with him he brings in his own stage hands oh wow and he doesn't even let you know the stage hands please divert your eyes from mr dylan yes you may not look upon him <laughs> do not gaze upon so i was like eyes. geez you're a little prideful dude i think i'm i'm not really into that so yeah that's kind of weird that turned me off a bit yeah. but he was cooler back in the day so. so those were um you know some of the bands i started getting into and uh, actually some of the bands that i saw in uh, concert at the time you know, thinking back, I saw some really, you know, what people nowadays kind of like would look at me and like, we're not worthy. <laughs> Seriously. So I've seen the, I've seen Cream twice. Uh, Cream was like a super group from England. Eric Clapton, Ginger Baker, Jack Bruce. Saw them twice. I saw, I don't know, I saw The Doors, The Jefferson Airplane. I'm talking about the original Jefferson Airplane. No, not the Starship. Uh, airplane. <laughs> Please clarify. Yes. The Doors, um, Jimi Hendrix. Hendrix was a very interesting concert. Yes, tell us the story he, about your Hendrix concert, because so that's now, a good one. So this is like 1967, and you know, people are like rebelling against the man. Very distinct I time. can't do air quotes when we're... Yeah. There, right? The man, air, air quote, quote, man, end quote. Yes. So everything was, so nobody would, you know, wear, wasn't cool if you were dressed in a suit or, you know, a tie and that kind of stuff. So we go, we're at the Jimi Hendrix concert at the Spectrum in Philadelphia. It's 1967. I think I was 15 years old. Not even sure how I got down there. But we're sitting there and the show's about to start. And the, the stage 
at the time they had a revolving stage in the spectrum so it was circular so it, everybody could get a good view of everything yeah so we see the stage start moving and you know we hear music we run back to our seats we're sitting there Jimmy comes around, gets up to play his first song, actually started playing a song, I don't remember what song it was, and he just stopped playing, looked at the band, the rest of the band stopped, and he gets up in the microphone and he just says, there goes a man with a tie on. And the whole spectrum like erupted in laughter because, you know, to put it in context, you know, why would somebody, like he thought it was be odd that somebody would wear a right, tie. Right, why would somebody go to a Jimmy Hendrix his concerts? concert in a tie? And, and he even recognized like I love how that he just called him out in the audience, there goes a man with a tie <laughs> on. Like, that's such a Jimi Hendrix thing to do. That would, great. I would just, what a great experience. And he did his whole show, you know, laid his guitar on fire at the end and it was still playing. It was pretty dramatic. So you dramatic. got the works. Yeah. That's great. That's great. So uh, I'm just trying to think of who else. Oh, Santana. I think That's randomly good. of bands that I saw. Santana, The Kinks, The Band. I saw The Band at the Spectrum. Those are all um, awesome. Those and a lot of good local Philadelphia bands. Yeah, you've seen a lot. Those are, and you still have the ticket stubs from some of those. I too. have ticket stubs from Jimi Hendrix, and uh, from The Cream, and the concert books from both of those. Wow. That's awesome. Those would be probably worth a lot of money, but honestly, I would I would not get rid of those. No, I'm hanging on to this. Yeah, don't do it. Um, so anyway, let's let's fast forward in your life to your main instrument <clears throat> now, despite all the ones that we listed, mm-hmm. is dobro. Correct. So at least explain, not all, right, so, all our listeners may know what a dobro actually is. Right, so it's an acoustic slide guitar, and not to get too technical, but the neck is made so that there is no way you could play it like a regular guitar with your fingers. It's specifically made for slide playing. So it sits flat, either you're holding it with a strap or sitting it in your lap. You play it sitting flat with uh, metal picks and a slide, a bar for a slide. So that's how. So when did you start playing dobro? Well, let me just do a quick rewind. So okay. when the so I was all into this rock music, you know, at the time. Okay. So all of a sudden, I forget what year it was, 1969 maybe or something like that. This show comes on TV in black and white okay called the beverly hillbillies great show so when the first night it came on and i heard the opening theme song i was like what is that sound (laughs) that sound of the banjo attracted me so much that 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 christmas i told my mom i said she was asking me what do you want for christmas i said i want a banjo okay so i actually got a banjo and sort of like self-taught myself how to play it for quite a few years after I got married I started trying to get back and get a little more serious in the banjo playing and I took banjo lessons from a guy named Tony Trishka up in Manhattan excellent banjo player he was very popular at the time and he's the one that really honed me into the bluegrass style of playing then I met I was able to meet some local bluegrass musicians to the area here and got in with them and just learned, you know, by fire, just being thrown in with those guys. That's a great way to learn. And playing, <laughs> and I, you know, just got, so I actually played banjo for probably, I don't know, 15 or 20 years before I started dobro. Okay. So at some point, I don't know what made me think this, you know, my main, one of my main bluegrass bands was Flat and Scruggs. So they always had a dobro. They were the first band, bluegrass band, to put a dobro in, in 1955. That's very interesting. And they did it, you know, because they wanted to distance themselves 
from the Bill Monroe sound. Gotcha. And that so makes Bill sense. Monroe would never use a dobro, so they decided they were going to add a dobro. So they had Josh Graves. And I had always listened to that for years, but I never like sort of honed in on the dobro. And you know, it's just one of these things, you don't know why it happens. One day I was like, I wonder how you play that thing. And then I knew somebody that had one. It turned out that the first four strings are tuned the same as a banjo. So I was like, well, so I should be able to play that pretty easy. It segued perfectly. Yeah. So then, uh, long story short, I, I had uh, met up with Paul Beard of Beard Guitars, now currently makes guitars for Jerry Douglas, among other people. Uh, I had Paul build me a custom-made dobro, and I played that for a number of years. And that then is when I transitioned away from banjo to dobro, which is now mainly what I play besides ukulele. Okay, so that makes that's a good summary of that. Um, did anybody officially teach you dobro, or did you? I only took one dobro lesson ever from the great Mike Aldridge. Went to his house in uh, Silver Spring, Maryland, down in his basement, and took like an hour and a half lesson from him, which I still have a recording of. Wow, really? Um, yeah, the recording is awesome because we're both sitting next to each other, uh, essentially playing the same guitars, and he would play a piece for me to imitate, and it was with this beautiful, melodious, full, sweet tone, and then he would ask me to do it, and if you, you know, I listen back on the recording, I hear what sounds like chickens scratching around <laughs> on a on an empty water bucket and that's me trying to imitate what mike aldridge is doing it's well, pretty, the contrast is pretty funny you hardly sound <laughs> like chickens on a water bucket anymore so it must have i guess i came around some yeah. effects um, so that was the only lesson i ever took on the dober only that. had and one lesson rest one lesson the rest is self-taught that's pretty good just like ukulele self-taught on the ukulele yeah now you play the ukulele yes yeah. 10 years quite a repertoire of instruments yes that is true. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, okay. So I went sticking to the Dobro before I move on. Okay. Tell me about, you met Jerry Douglas. Um, for those of you who don't know who Jerry Douglas is, he plays in Union Station with Allison Krauss, huge Allison Krauss fan. Um, so tell me about how you came to that situation. That so as I mentioned, Paul Beard had built me a custom-built guitar. It was number seven that Paul ever built to sell. That's how long ago it was. He was working by himself in the basement of his house when he built this for me. Now he has a big, you know, shop like production Steve Jobs shop. situation. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> so uh, he made that for me and I picked it up um, probably in the early spring, but it maybe 1989. And somehow I kept in contact with Paul because he, you know, would want to know how the guitar was doing and this and that. Right. So somehow he found out that I was going to this bluegrass festival up in New York State, Winterhawk. And he also knew that Jerry Douglas was going to be there. Were you going there to play or just to attend? Just going there to attend. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so Paul calls me up. He says, you got to bring that guitar and get Jerry to play it. So okay. I'm like, okay, I don't mind this mission. <laughs> right. That's a cool mission. I'd yeah. be down for that. So we went to this festival, Winterhawk Festival, the stage is up on the hill, top of the hill, the camping, we were camped at the bottom. So it's quite a trek to get up and down there, try to go and stay in one spot, you know, as long as you could. So we're just like randomly walking around and I see Jerry Douglas and I explain to him, hey, Jerry, I have this guitar, this guy made, he wants you to see it. I said, you know, would you have, let me know when you think you have time. And he's like, well, we can do it now. And I'm like, okay. 
the guitar is at the bottom of the hill at the campsite. Oh, geez. So I said, okay, so now it's Jerry Douglas. I don't want to lose him, you know. And, and Right. We, so I run down the bottom of the hill. I come running back up with the dobro. And I ran into my wife and my friend Linda who were there. And they were like, are you okay? You look like you're about to pass out. I'm like, Jerry Douglas, I got to go with it. They were probably like, okay, go. They were like, you better take a break. Take a minute, you know, to to compose yourself. So I went over and Jerry was still in the spot where I had left him. So I was glad about that. You know, he said, all right. Uh, So there was a popular bluegrass band at the time called Hot Rise. Okay. He said, uh, he says, there's the Hot Rise bus. He says, let's go in there. So I went in there and sat in there for about a half hour next to Jerry Douglas while he wow. played that guitar. It was pretty, no, pretty exciting for that me. That would be awesome. I'd love that. Apparently it wasn't as exciting for him and memorable as it was for me because years later, this is going back maybe only like four or five years ago. So wait, what year was that? Just so we... 1989. Okay, that's 1989. This is only a couple of years ago. A couple of years ago. So I go to one of Jerry's shows and after the show, he usually comes out. So I went over to him like, hey, blah, blah, blah. I said, you remember that time in Winterhawk Festival? I, you know, had this guitar, a beard. I said, it's the first beard you ever played because there were none around. I said, I brought it. We went in the Hot Rise bus. And I could start to see in his eyes. I'm like, and I looked at him. I said, you have no idea what I'm talking about, do you? And he's like, sorry, I don't really remember. <laughs> and doesn't he play beard guitars now? Now he plays beard guitars. That's hilarious. So I, I literally do have the first beard guitar that Jerry ever played. He's like, I don't know who the heck you are. Whether he remembers it or not. (laughs) He's like, dude, go away. I don't know. And then it was even funnier because he says, no, I don't remember that. He said, but somebody just a few days ago was telling me that same story. (laughs) So it must have been Paul Beard. I was going to say, the only other person who knows it is Paul Beard. So, well, that's really funny. Um, Thinking of other things. Well, tell me about home cooking. Because you had your own group. Yes. So then I played... Uh, at the time I started playing Dobro, we had a group called Endless Mountain Bluegrass. Okay. With, that I was in with my friend Linda and a guy named Frank Rossi, who was a feature uh, article writer for the Philadelphia Inquirer. Okay. He had, you know, played bluegrass, him and his wife. So he recruited, we ran into him at a jam session somewhere, me and Linda. He recruited us to form this band called Endless Mountain Bluegrass Band. That's a cool This is even before home cooking. Right. So we um, we played for a couple years with that band, and then you know personalities conflicted great, that, that, greatly at that time. That happens. <coughs> Excuse me. And then so me and Linda stayed together, <clears throat> and we put together a band with that you know is home cooking, and that was you know that was around that time when I had got the beard the first beard guitar. So okay. it's 1989, 1990. We first started with home cooking, and. Um, we had various banjo players through the years, but it was always me and my friend Linda and uh, Bill on bass. And we played quite, you know, pretty extensively. We had jobs around uh, the area that booked us for like 25 years. We kept going back and going back and going back. So we got around pretty good regionally, did a little bit of stuff down in Florida at some festivals. Yeah. But I played mainly dobro in that band when I first started. Um, Linda got me was the one that started me singing she kept coaxing me and coaxing me and she would play records or whatever you want to call cds she would play cds of people that sang worse than me so i could (laughs) see that i really wasn't that bad that's a great encouragement so i i didn't sing for the longest time i never sang it and all of a sudden she kept bugging me about it and bugging me i'm like okay i'll try so the first song i ever sang on stage was uh it's actually was written by johnny cash 
and recorded by Flat and Scruggs called Papa When Papa Played the Dobro. I think I may have heard of that. That's the first song I ever sang. Was then, like Linda says, yeah. And after that, I could never get him to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> well, good for her for uh, pushing you to do that. It's funny that you say she the way she got you to sing was playing people worse mm-hmm. because um, when I first started playing guitar, I'm more um, inhibited about my instrument playing than my singing because I've been singing since like I popped out of the womb. I don't mm-hmm. know. I just always have. But I started playing guitar at 14, and I was always kind of timid, timid about it, because um, everybody in my class seemed to be better than me. Um, I was just more chords, and they could always do solos and stuff, because it was all guys. I was me and one other girl in that class, and it was like 30 people. So I, they were looking to shred some solos. Yeah, they were like, you know, ripping Metallica, and I was like Taylor Swift or something. So, um, and it was a. a a really funny class like this is how I wound up playing guitar was I was in high school and I had a crush on a guy in the class so the next semester I took guitar I was like we'll have guitar we'll both be guitar players we'll connect and um so um yeah it was like 30 people in one classroom and we all had guitars you can imagine how that went but somehow like still a lot of the people who were in that guitar class still play but um yeah so I I there was a lot of people who were just better but I had the idea that I would write my own songs because you can't mess up a song you wrote because <laughs> it, it's yours. It's yours, so you tell if it's right or wrong. And so that's why I started writing songs. <laughs> so it's pretty funny. But um, how long did you go with home cooking? How long were you guys together? About a little over 30 years. That's pretty decent. That's a pretty decent run. The same band, yep. Well, yeah, we had fun. Do you guys ha- do you have any funny or interesting <clears throat> stories of uh, gigs you played? With home cooking, yeah. Um, one interesting thing was we played in uh, up in Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania, one time. Okay. And uh, we, they put us in a theater. Well, it was raining, pouring rain that day. In fact, some of the streets had been closed. Okay. That's how bad it was raining. Um, and right behind the curtain, water was dripping, and. We went around there looking. It was all this weird stuff. We later discovered it was the magician's props that were back there. Oh, my gosh. But, yeah, and so we're trying to play, and we could hear water dripping, and we, you know, it was, wasn't just not a good day. Yeah, rainy days that was are always place. Then you, rough to play. Yeah, then you get things like um, we went to play somewhere, and we always mostly always had our own sound system set up, and we started playing at this particular gig and heard this, horrendous grinding crushing noise and looked and they had put the uh, snow cone machine right next to the oh stage my gosh. <laughs> it actually cracks me up sometimes how places will hire you i've had this experience when gigging before that they'll hire you and make a big deal out of it and then they'll put you in like the worst corner it's like nobody puts baby in a corner like if you were on the titanic you'd be in steerage <laughs> exactly i'm like well we would be the first to die <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's just terrible. I'm like, why did you guys even hire us? I remember one time I did a gig and uh, they said they were going to provide, like, I said, should I bring my own stuff? And they're like, no, don't worry about it. I got there and there was no microphone. I'm like, well, <laughs> I am not going to be able to play over the crowd. This is essentially pointless. And they were like, no, just, just try it. You know, it, it'll be fine. And I couldn't even hear myself play. So I was like, after a while, somebody came up and was like, you know, nice try, you know, and I was like, do you even want me to keep going? It was just a mess, so. Yeah, sometimes people are clueless at places. We've had that before. Yeah. We actually played a pretty big gig up at Liberty State Park, 
And it was sponsored by NJ101, the radio station and all. Yeah. And I guess we were the only acoustic band there because when we got there, the guy was like, what kind of sound you need? You know, we said, we just need mics. He said, well, I only have like three mics. Oh, geez. For vocals. Yeah. We're used to playing with two mics each in a bluegrass band because nothing's oh, yeah. plugged in so you need an instrument and a vocal mic yeah traditionally so we with that had kind of to music do, there yeah. is no electric acoustic we had to get the duct tape out and do some serious choreography that day to, to yeah, get and I'm that surprised gig. you're able to swing it <laughs> yeah I'm like mics aren't even that expensive if you're gonna be a place that regularly hires music invest in some mics they're mm-hmm. like a hundred bucks each and there's for a lot of okay one and there's a lot of places that a lot of people don't just are not familiar with like in acoustic music if yeah. you're used to like rock kind of bands or country whatever yeah they just have their back line of amps and everything is pretty it's much electric. pretty straightforward but it does throw some sound people sometime if you come around with a bunch of acoustic instruments they're like where are you going to plug in you're like we don't plug into anything right, just give me a <laughs> just mic turn some mics on and it can work. really throw people i've seen that well, I think this is a pretty good podcast. We got a lot down. I think Covered so. Covered some good stories. Some some of my historic stories. <laughs> yeah. Well, see, well, eventually, uh, all everything I say is going to be historic because right. we're going to be taken over by the drones. The, those drones. The drones and the government incense. So, mm-hmm. all right, guys. I need that uh, government incense. Yeah, the government incense. There's uh, my last, my third from the last got a stumpy leg. So, <laughs> all right. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed this podcast. Uh, stay tuned and peace out.